The first reading is from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war any more. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The second reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 1 to 10 and then verses 14 to 21. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. So that what is mortal, may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. 
All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So shall we pray? We invite you, come Holy Spirit, come and speak to us, come and open up our ears, come and soften our hearts, so that uh, the message of reconciliation might uh, come and be alive in us. Amen. So, uh, Remembrance Sunday. Uh, as we said, and um, I think we have at least two veterans here in the congregation. We have Bob and we have uh, Simeon as well, who's out with the, with the kids at the moment. So people who are on the, on the front lines, and there may be more as well. So we, we celebrated this past uh, May, 78 years of peace in, in, in uh, Western Europe since the end of the Second World War. And as Iris mentioned, we also, uh, on Remembrance Sunday, think about all of the Areas in the world where there is no peace at the moment, of course, Israel and Gaza, of course, Ukraine and Russia, many other places as well. And the question uh, is, uh, what, what should our response be? What, what, how do we respond when we're faced with this kind of suffering and this kind of violence? That's why we're looking at 2 Corinthians 5 today. That's a letter from the Apostle Paul. And what he, he shares some things, and I hope they're going to be helpful for us. The first thing that Paul writes in the opening verses of, of what Olivia read there, is that the reality of this life causes us to groan. I'm just going to repeat the first four verses. Paul writes, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So, why all this groaning from Paul? If you read the previous chapter, chapter 4, we read about Paul uh, telling about all of the persecution and all of the hardship he's been through, the suffering that he's had for the gospel, uh, the way in which he's been badly treated, and he says that, he, he summarizes that suffering as a kind of death. That's the language that he uses. So he says in the previous chapter, for we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. So he, he's saying ministry in hard circumstances is a bit like a death because 
I, Paul, am having the suffering, but hopefully this is bringing life to you. And so, as a result, he's groaning, he's groaning, he's saying, this is so hard, this is so painful, there's so much violence, there's so, so much injustice, so much war. He, uh, he, he, he says, I long to be free from this body, I long to be free from this life, free from this world, with its destruction and death. Instead, he says he wants to be with Jesus. And so he uses the imagery of being clothed in heavenly dwellings, in other words, being with, with God, uh, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. So mortal like mortus, the, 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 the Latin word, which means death. So mortal, if, you, if I say to you, hi, mortal, I, I, I'm saying to you, hi, death, in a way, right? Because that's where, where this word comes from. But so what is mortal, what is subject to death, like we all are, will eventually be swallowed up by life. So that's, death is what faces all of us. Um, uh, was it George Bush or so who said there's two things that are unavoidable, taxes and death or something like that. But uh, death faces all of us. Each of us, n- none of us here, this is the bad news for today, none of us here are going to escape death unless Jesus returns before them. Uh, and at the same time, even though we know it's natural, even though we realize it's part of life, all of us also have this inherent sort of hatred of it or this feeling that it's not right and not natural and not good, that uh, somehow it feels... It is natural, but it feels unnatural. That's one of the things we struggle with. And we don't just think that for ourselves, we think that for others as well. So when we see these, uh, uh, you know, the effects of the attack of Hamas on, on Israel, or if we see these children in Palestinian hospitals, then something inside us says, this is not right, this is not how it should be. We don't say, oh, this is natural, everyone lives, everyone dies. We don't say that. We say, this is not good, this is not how it should be. We have a deep-seated conviction that death is not part of the natural order. That's just one conflict that's going on. The, the map here shows all of the current conflicts that are happening in the world. Well, a lot of the world is colored, right, at that point. See, th- these, these are all areas in which people have died in current armed conflicts. And therefore, our response, just as Paul's, is to groan. What a mess we're in. Lord, why is it like this? Why are we surrounded by suffering and death? We know that life is what is good. Life is what we want, not death. So Paul groans, and then he continues uh, in the next part, which I'm also going to read for us again. He says, Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. And therefore, we are always confident and know know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So in the, in the, in the opening paragraph, Paul is groaning all the time, uh, but now he repeatedly says, I'm confident. What Paul shows us here is that those two things are not necessarily in contradiction with one another. It, it doesn't necessarily mean uh, that if you groan, you can't be confident, or if you're confident, you can't groan. How do we hold these two things together? The fact that Paul groans and laments the situation, but he doesn't lose his confidence. 
His confidence in what? We'll come to that in a moment. Uh, but first, how do we groan with confidence? Well, most of us tend to fall into one of two unhelpful extremes, which is due mostly to our personality. Uh, some of us are natural optimists. So uh, if you speak to someone like that, they will have great faith in human progress. Look how far we've come. They'll have faith in the power of education or of diplomacy to solve conflicts wherever they occur. This was the, uh, very much the mood in, in Western Europe uh, in the 1990s. And uh, there was a famous book written in 1992 by Francis Fukuyama, who was a political scientist from America. And he, his book had in the title, uh, The End of History. Because this was a time, the 90s, in which people were positive. The Cold War had come to an end. There weren't a lot of conflicts around the world. Uh, democracy was taking over everywhere. And so people were feeling positive. And Francis Fukuyama said, perhaps we've come to the end of history. We've come to the stable situation in which we just get along with one another and in which uh, we, we don't have to worry about these conflicts anymore. There will be peace and prosperity for everyone. So how different does the world look today, hey? We're not, not at all in that situation anymore, are we? But that, that might be you, right? You might be the person who deep at heart says, if we simply would work together, we could solve all of the problems. Those people tend to be confident and they tend to dismiss the groaning a bit. They try to say, come on, let's stay positive. We can do it. Confident, but no groaning. On the other hand, some of us, some of us are natural pessimists, or you might call yourself a realist. I would call you a pessimist. Uh, but uh, we, see, we see all of the conflict. We see all of the uh, difficulties. And we say, peace will never come. We will always deal with these problems. We say, politicians are corrupt. People are selfish. It's all about money or oil or power or nationalism. The poor are oppressed. The rich become richer. So you're a person who groans, but you don't have any confidence. What Paul models is a third way. And that is the way of hope. And so this is not a hope where you cross your fingers, you go, oh, I really hope it's going to get better. Oh. That's not that kind of hope. In a Christian context, hope is the sure and certain knowledge that ultimately death has been swallowed up by life. That as bad as it is, as bad it is, uh, if we look at that map of the world with all of the conflicts going on, Paul, Paul, Paul knew more suffering than any of us. And yet he called this in his own words... Light and momentary troubles in comparison to the eternal glory that far outweighs them. I would not dare to call what's going on in the world today light and momentary troubles. And yet Paul does that in, in a similar situation. And he says, by comparison, that is what it will look like because of the hope that he has. And the hope is not in our own ability to solve problems. Although, of course, let's be honest, we could do a better job. But we can make a difference. Uh, but, in, but, but hope is not that. Hope, hope is not our hope in ourselves to, to, to become better. The hope is in God's promises that he will make all things new. And so Paul is confident, and his confidence is in the fact, uh, what he says in that first verse, that God has a purpose in everything that he is doing. Now, the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God. So there's a purpose for us. That's already one bit of hope, because suffering, of course, is difficult, if, there's no, if there doesn't seem to be any purpose behind it. But he says there's a purpose. And he gives three reasons, Paul, why, why we should have this kind of confidence. Firstly, God has given us the Spirit as a deposit. 
verse 5. God gives us a spirit, the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So as believers, God has given each one of us his Spirit. And the difference that God's Spirit makes to us is that, uh, we can read this in Romans 8, the Spirit tells us and assures us deep inside that we are children of God, that he loves us. The Spirit also intercedes for us, which means that the Spirit prays for us, uh, even when, when we don't have the words or when we don't uh, we just don't want to pray, then the Spirit intercedes for us. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. So that, that's, that's important for us, right? When we, when we look at the difficulties in the world, then we have the Spirit within us who helps us in our weakness. The Spirit whispers to us, the Spirit prays for us, the Spirit assures us that it won't always be like this. And that is because, in the words of Paul, the Spirit is given as a deposit which is a guarantee. So a deposit is a, is a first payment, right? If you're going to buy a car or if you're going to buy a house, then you put down a deposit and whoever is selling it to you is very happy because they know this is the first bit of lots more that is to come. It guarantees that a bigger payment is coming. And that's what God gives to us in the Spirit. The Spirit is the guarantee that there is more to come for us. So the Spirit works inside of us, works inside of us the Spirit reminds us uh, that the way the world is today is not how it always will be. Better days are coming. And we can hold on to that because we have that first deposit. But Paul is also confident because we live by faith and not by sight. Paul is confident because he doesn't judge how well things are going by what he sees, but by faith. And as Christians, we too must we must be wary of putting too much importance on our sights, on what we see. If we live by sights, then what we see, uh, we count as true and ultimate. And that will lead us to the conclusion that things will probably only get worse from here. But if we're called to live by faith, that means that what we take as true and ultimate is not what we see, but God's promises. They are true and ultimate. And that leads us to the hope that despite what we see in, in, uh, is the bad situation in the world, God will eventually make all things new. Thirdly, Paul is confident because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. That's in verse 14. And this is the third and the most important reason why Paul has confidence. He has confidence because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Paul says in so many words that there's only one kind of death that we should be aspiring to. And that is the death in which we are joined when we join in the death of Jesus. So if you are a believer, that means that, that what uh, happened to Jesus happens to you as well. You are joined with him in death, but then you're also joined with him in new life, in resurrection. And so when you die, you die to your old self. You die to your old sinful ways of being, behaving and believing. And then you have to live by faith, of course, because sometimes when I look at myself, it doesn't seem like my old self has died. But I don't look by sight, I look by faith, and so I believe that that is true. And then when Christ was raised, we are raised with him to eternal life. And the, the, the challenge for us as Christians is that we should look at that death and resurrection as being more real than our physical death. That, that's a big challenge, right? Because we're used to seeing by sight and not by faith. But the confidence is found when we see 
the death and resurrection that we're joined in with Christ as more real than our physical death because it has eternal uh, implications. Paul uh, says in the next verse, so from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. See, he's not looking by sight anymore. He's looking by faith. He says, I might see one thing with my eyes, but I believe something else in my heart. So this gives a bit of a pattern of how Paul lives his life, uh, which also then shows us how we live our lives. So we groan, but it is a hopeful groan. And we're confident, but it's a humble confidence because it acknowledges the suffering uh, that we see. And for Paul, Paul, this perspective on life informs how he sees his own ministry, because that's what he's going to talk about next, uh, and also how he sees our ministry uh, to the world. So the, the world is groaning, but we need to be sharers of hope. I'm going to read a bit more from, from the letter, verses 17 to 20. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So Paul says that our ministry, his own ministry, but our ministry as well, flows from this uh, groaning confidence that we have, or flows from this, 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 this fact that we hold these two difficult things together. And he calls his ministry, this is actually the, the, the chapter in all of Paul's letters in which he, he talks most specifically about his own ministry. And he calls his own ministry the ministry of reconciliation. And for him, that means two things. Firstly, that God has reconciled us to himself through Christ. So in his letters, Paul uses two words that contrast one another to explain what, to explain what someone's relationship with God is. He says, either you are alienated or you are reconciled. So to be alienated is to, to be away from God, to, be, to not be in relationship with him. Uh, it, that um, is caused by sin, and sin causes us to, to remove ourselves from God, to run away like the prodigal son. But through Jesus uh, Christ, what has happened is that God has run after us. When we ran away, he ran after us uh, to deal with our sin and to reconcile us to himself. So the relationship is restored. So that, that's the first thing that the ministry of reconciliation means. It means that we are restored uh, in relationship to God, and that we can share that with others as well. That's point two. As soon as God has, has restored the relationship with us, he says to us, there are still many people out there who are alienated from me, who are hurting and confused and running away. And so he says to us, you must go, and you must let them know the good news that the relationship with God can be restored. So we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. We've been given the message of reconciliation for ourselves, 
That's good news, right? But we've also been given the ministry of reconciliation to go out and speak as Christ's ambassadors. So you've seen, you've seen that, right, in, in the conflict in the Middle East now, how uh, various countries, there was a the peace conference in, in Paris the other day. Uh, Qatar is, is, is do, sending ambassadors and doing work. That, that's our role as well. We, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation to see what we can do to bring uh, alienated parties back together. We are Christ's ambassadors. We have been given the authority to speak on his behalf. He makes his appeal through us. That's literally what Paul says. He makes his appeal through us. If people are going to know that they are reconciled, they're going to hear that through us. And on this Remembrance Sunday, we can be encouraged that this uh, ministry of reconciliation is not just for individuals. We sometimes read the Bible too much through an individual lens and say, well, it's only about me and my relationship with God. But it's also true at the, at the global level, at the level of history. I don't know if you were paying attention to the Old Testament reading from Isaiah, but that's a, a vision that Isaiah sees right at the beginning of his ministry, chapter 2. And he sees this vision of uh, Jerusalem and people from all nations coming to worship God. So that shows that those nations have been reconciled to God, right? People from all nations are coming to, to worship God. And what flows out of that, we read in verse 4, because God will judge between the nation and he will settle disputes for many people. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. So you see that the, the, the side effects of being reconciled to God is that we are also reconciled to one another to the extent that you don't even need weapons anymore because you can just transform them, in, transform them into uh, like agrarian tools instead because you don't, you don't need them anymore because violence and war has been done away with. When we are reconciled to God, we are also reconciled to one another. So... Uh, that, that's the, the truth behind that, right? So where we bring the message of reconciliation, people are reconciled to each other. As people and nations return to God, war ceases and we are reconciled. So that's, that's the message for us today. We are Christ's ambassadors. He has committed to us the message and ministry of reconciliation. The old has gone and the new is here. Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you that we have received this message of reconciliation. We thank you, Lord, that somehow through someone who shared with us, uh, through uh, a church community, through reading your word, through your spirit, we have received this message that we are reconciled with you. We thank you, Lord, that when we ran away, you came after us and that you restored the relationship with us. And Lord, when we look at the world, we see how this message is necessary all over the place. We see the fighting, we see the violence, and we see that it is not right. And so, Lord, we pray that you would equip your church to be ministers of reconciliation wherever we go. And Lord, we thank you that when we, when we uh, reach out our hand in peace, that is a, a sign of, uh, that you are at work in us. So it might, might even be that 
that some of us sitting here uh, are um, are not on speaking terms, perhaps, with people who used to be friends or, or family members or others. And that may very well be through no fault of our own. But perhaps God is saying today that we need to uh, at least make sure that, that we share uh, the, the fact that we, that we offer forgiveness, that we offer forgiveness, that we reach out a hand of peace. I don't know what that looks like for you, but perhaps you want to, you want to pray about how God might be encouraging you to, to bring reconciliation to those relationships. And Lord, we also pray for the world. We pray for Israel, uh, for your beloved people. We pray for Gaza and for the Palestinians. We pray for Ukraine and the Ukrainians, and we pray for Russia. We pray for large parts of Africa, for other countries in the Middle East. Jesus, you are the Prince of Peace. Would you bring your peace to our broken world? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.